0: Turn quickly to 2 Samuel 11. I'm sure you're familiar with the story. I just want to highlight a few things from this passage as background to the other passage because I think it's very commonly accepted and even the inscription above Psalm 51 would indicate that it's connected with David's sin with Bathsheba. Second Samuel 11.1 1, In the spring, in the time when da- kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants out with him, and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon, and deceived Rabbah, but David stayed at Jerusalem. don't really know why David stayed at Jerusalem, only that he did. And um, probably was obligation on his part to be leading his men, not from just back in Jerusalem, but also um being there in the battle arena with them. And we see an interesting contrast between his attitude and that of Bathsheba's husband when he returns to report to David here in a few verses. It's evening. David arises from his bed, walks around on the roof of the king's house. From the roof he saw a woman bathing and she was very beautiful in appearance. Um, And again, this is not automatically a sinful thing to be restless at night, to walk around, to try to go to sleep. The question again is, what do you do with that time that is potentially idle, that is potentially risky or dangerous, just because there's not as many people around, there's not as many checks and balances for the desires of our hearts? David should have stopped there. David sent and inquired about the woman. One said, is this not Bathsheba? David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. When she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. So we have the circumstance that the king summons her and she comes. And obviously she's married. There could potentially have been a refusal on her part. Some would argue that because of David's position, it would have been unwise or dangerous for her to refuse. And that's why she didn't. Obviously, if someone in authority over us tells us to do something wrong, that doesn't make it okay. But it is also interesting that she follows the requirements of the Mosaic Law. After they sin in this way, she cleanses herself according to the requirements of the law, goes back to her house. Then we come to the problem in that up to that point, it was only David and a few servants that were aware of what David had done and whoever happened to be watching their communication back and forth now she's pregnant, and it's going to be obvious that something going, has gone on. And as we see shortly, the fact that her husband was at battle is going to indicate that it was not her husband; it was someone else. David's solution comes in the next few verses. Send me Uriah the Hittite. Uriah came. David asks, "How is the war going?" Go down to your house and wash your feet. And he went out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent out after him. So David hoped that Uriah and Bathsheba would come together as husband and wife, and it would cover his tracks, and no one would know that he had sinned. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house and did not go down to his house. David finds out about it. Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go to your house? Uriah said, The ark and Israel and Judah are in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Here's the irony of this circumstance. uh, Uriah is a Hittite. He's someone who is attached to the people of Israel, not by blood, but uh, by some of the things that had gone on in the land during the process of conquering in which Israel didn't fully drive out everyone from the land. He's just one of the remnants of the people that are left in the land, and he's behaving righteously and God's appointed king is behaving wickedly. I think that's an interesting point that we should note. David called him, tried to get him to go again, and he refuses. So David writes a letter to Joab, the commander, and says, make sure that he attacks a particular place, and when he attacks that place, call them in back so so that you make sure that he dies in battle. Joab does it. And David thinks everything is good. Bathsheba mourns for her husband. But note that it does not call her Bathsheba in verse 26. It calls her the wife of Uriah. Again, the narrator is highlighting the fact she belonged to Uriah. She should have stuck with Uriah, but she sinned in his way with David. The thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord, and so even though she bears him a son, um, God did not overlook their sin. God sends the prophet Nathan to rebuke David, gives him this parable david is righteously angry at the story nathan uses it to point out and by the spirit's power to convict david about the sin that he has committed and the end result is the lord has taken away your sin you shall not die chapter 12 verse 13 chapter 12 verse 14 however because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the lord to blaspheme the child also that is born to you shall surely die. This is one of these. Um, if if we had no concept of God, we would call it a senseless tragedy. How could God take away the life of someone who was innocent, the punishment of the one who was guilty, instead of taking away the life of the one who was guilty? And I don't know that we can fully answer that question other than to say God had appointed David to be the ruler in Israel. God had things yet for David to do. God was taking the sin very seriously. And God in his justice and mercy certainly has the capacity to grant forgiveness of sin. David's going to point out in Psalm 51 that we sin from the womb. God has the capacity to grant salvation to those whom he chooses, including infants and those who otherwise, we might think, are not able to respond to the gospel. That being said, that's a much more extended topic we don't have time to go into right now. So turn over to Psalm 51. I just wanted to set the backdrop quickly for this psalm. It's a, a sobering psalm, but I think that we would not necessarily get the weight of it if we didn't review what we just reviewed from Second Samuel. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Different people break down the psalm in different ways, but I think that grouping verses one through four together is a good way of breaking it down. And uh, if you have a at least mine has them that as a complete paragraph. Because in verses one through four, David doesn't necessarily begin by talking about himself; he begins by talking about what God is like. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness according to the greatness of your compassion forgive me and then at the end you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge there is an expression that god is holy there is a recognition that god's mercy is the only thing that's going to spare david in the midst of his sin and so david is both confessing but in the way that he confesses he is acknowledging that god is holy And the only thing that he can do is throw himself on God's mercy that he might be forgiven. He doesn't try to hide his sin. Sometimes we want to make excuses for our sin. It's a mistake. I forgot. I didn't know. There is perhaps less guilt when we are ignorant, but that doesn't erase the fact that we have sinned. And a lot of times when we claim ignorance, we're trying to cover up the fact that we knew better and we sinned anyway. So, for example, I say something out of anger that is untrue, that's a lie. I didn't mean that. We did mean it because we said it and our words reflect our hearts. In this case, David doesn't do anything like that. He just says, I have sinned, I acknowledge my sin. I can't hide from my sin. I tried to hide my sin from all these people. God, you still knew, and you brought it to the light. And you are right in condemning me. And it's also interesting to note in verse 4, against you, you only, I have sinned. So his primary sin was not against Bathsheba, though he sinned against her. It was not against Uriah, though he sinned against him. It was not ultimately even against the people of Israel, though he sinned against them by setting a poor example of what it means to follow God, ultimately his sin was against God himself. And that's another of the things that sometimes we don't acknowledge or recognize when we are caught in sin or when we go to confess our sin. We need to deal with all those other people, but first and foremost, we need to deal with God about the sin. And that's what David is doing here. So he starts out addressing God's character as his only hope in the midst of this sin, and then he talks about the fact That his life is saturated by sin from beginning till the present moment. Verse 5 Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. So he starts out in this section talking about iniquity. He ends talking about iniquity. He basically says, from birth, I'm a sinner. And so when I acted in this way, I was acting according to that old sinful nature, but acting naturally is no excuse for the fact that it displeases you. Because in contrast, verse 6, you desire truth in the innermost being. In the hidden part, you'll make me know wisdom. That second phrase of verse 6 is a lot of dispute about how exactly to render the Hebrew. Is it a, uh, a future? Is it a, a present statement? Regardless, the point seems to be this. God is working in us internally to deal with the sin that's in our hearts. I think that's the bottom line that we can take away from those couple of verses. Because we sin from birth, God has to intervene and transform us internally, not just our outward actions. Verse 7 has a lot of imagery that would have had to do with the, um, the mosaic system, the things that God had required the Israelites to do. So purifying me with hyssop. Uh, if you had leprosy and the priest says, okay, you're clean of the leprosy, he would have taken water and he would have sprinkled you with the water as a sign that you were clean of the leprosy, not that it magically washed the leprosy away. But that was a symbolic thing of saying the person was now cleansed. Other times, they would have used hyssop as a, it would have been, he dipped it in the blood of the sacrifice, and it was a sign of purification. So in the New Testament, when we see phrases like uh, in 1 Peter 1, to be sprinkled with the blood of Christ, were cleansed by the blood of Christ in a, in a similar way that the people of Israel were cleansed by the blood of the sacrifice. So think about this. David's saying, potentially, here's this sacrifice. Splatter the blood of the sacrifice on me so that I might be cleansed. And we tend to think, yeah, they did sacrifices, no big deal. Any of you who've ever killed anything, chickens or larger animals, it's not a pleasant thing to be around. It was a constant reminder of their sin, and the only way that they could come to God was if that sin was paid for by blood and ultimately by the blood of Christ. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. There were all sorts of rituals associated with the law of purifications and cleansing. Ironically, the thing that Bathsheba did after uh, they sinned and committed adultery together was not like taking a bath to be clean. It was taking a bath to be ritually clean and reaccepted into the community despite the fact that she had sinned against God and against her husband. In a righteous sense, David is saying, Lord, wash me, purify me. I will be whiter than snow. When it says, the bones which you have broken rejoice, he's probably saying, my guilt has sunk in so that I feel it in the entirety of me. If you've ever had guilt about something that affects you very intensely, it's like you can feel it in your bones. And David is expressing, I think, in a figurative sense, that sort of agony that he is experiencing because of his sin. And the only relief from it is God's forgiveness. When he says, hide your face, he's not saying, ignore me, go far from me. He's saying, on the basis of the fact that you can forgive my sin, forgive my sin, and blot out my iniquities. Not erase them, but forgive them. Then we come to the familiar part here in the middle. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. He wants God to purify his heart. Not just outward purification, which was necessary in the requirements for the people of Israel, but also to purify his heart, to deal with the sin that was the thing that prompted him to wander at night be tempted, act on that temptation, try to cover up that temptation, and not repent of it until the prophet uh, rebukes him and his son dies. I mean, something is dreadfully wrong inside his soul, and he's saying, God, I need you to deal with that. Don't cast me away from your presence, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. So people argue that in the Old Testament, people could lose the Spirit of God. In the New Testament, we would say the Spirit comes to dwell in us. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we're all baptized into one body by one Spirit. And then all of the other passages that talk about the coming of the Holy Spirit. What was different about the coming of the Spirit on David or in David's day than we have today? It would be the fact that the Spirit specially enabled people for specific tasks, both in the Old Testament and I would also argue in the New. So like uh, Acts 4, they prayed that the Spirit would give them boldness, they were filled with the Spirit, and there's the earthquake, and they all go speak the word of God with boldness. That would be a parallel thing to what's going on here. He's saying, don't take away your spirit from me, like you took away your blessing and the work of your spirit in the life of Saul and gave him over to Satan to be possessed by an evil spirit and to go his own way. That's what he's talking about. He's not saying uh, that he can lose his relationship with God He's saying that God could take away the kingship from him because of his great sin. that That's the kind of the idea. And he would lose the special enabling power of the Spirit in that way. Instead, he asks God to restore to him the joy of salvation to sustain him with the willing spirit. It's possible that some might see a reference to the Holy Spirit. I think the willing spirit, in my mind, echoes what we see in another psalm um, in the example of Christ prophesied in a psalm where it says uh, behold i come to do your will O god so instead of wanting to go his own way he would have a willing spirit to go god's way and to do what's pleasing to god the end result of if god does this transforming work in his heart and in his soul would be that he would then in turn teach other sinners here's what god's done for me here's how god has forgiven me here's how you need to turn from your sin here's what god can do for you And that's, I think, the point of verse 13. Verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Again, he cries out to God, Deliver me. Blood guiltiness is his life was forfeit because he murdered another. Think back to the book of Genesis, right? Whoever sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. And the fact that he arranged the circumstances so that the uh, enemies that they were fighting killed Uriah, he was no less guilty because his wasn't the hand that directly killed him. He was guilty of the blood of Uriah. And so he needed God to forgive him and deliver him from that. And only then would he be then freed again to joyfully sing of God's righteousness. Um, just as an aside, it is difficult to commune with God and with his people when we are harboring sin in our hearts. Because we don't want to be around other people because they might bring it out in some way we don't want to go before god because we feel guilty and sometimes we don't feel like we want to give up the thing that we are sinning against god whatever it might be but david recognized that his sin was an obstacle to him properly worshiping god but the worship that god requires interestingly enough verse 16 was not sacrifices let me say well wasn't that like most of what the israelites did in their worship was things connected with various kinds of sacrifices yes but david is making the point like the prophets would make the point later on like samuel made the point to saul hey saul you made sacrifices not when god told you to do and not in the right way god's not going to accept your sacrifice even though you saved the really great stuff from the people that you conquered god's not going to accept that sacrifice In the same way, um, the prophets would make the point later on, Israelites, you guys are making sacrifices day after day. Your heart's not in it. You don't love God, so it doesn't mean anything. David is saying, I've done the outward rituals, and perhaps even while I'm going and doing the rituals in this intervening time period, because think about this, nine months for a typical pregnancy, right? David's going to the temple probably, right? participating in the worship. God wouldn't have accepted any of that worship because David's heart wasn't right before him, right? And so he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. He needed to repent of the sin, and that's what he's doing in this Psalm in the things that he's expressing. The last two verses, some people think, were added later in the history of Israel. As sort of an addendum or a commentary, possibly after the Israelites had gone through a similar experience, become aware of their sin of idolatry primarily, gone away into captivity, or now praying for God to restore His favor to them as His people. Uh, while that is possible, given the fact that the book of Psalms was compiled over a decent period of time and not like all in a single year, I think it fits very well with the context and that David could be the one who is expressing it at the end of this psalm. And we didn't sing this verse when we sang uh, the psalm, but this verse is basically saying, these two verses, God, by your favor, do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offering, then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Come to verse 19 in a moment because it seems to contradict 16. What is verse 18 saying? God, I've sinned and my sin undermined your name before the nations around me. So they could look at David and be like, you know what? This guy's just like our kings, has a harem, doesn't control himself, lies, murders, cheats, whatever. And that's, in fact, part of what Nathan accused David of, right? Right? you have given the enemies of God an opportunity to blaspheme his name. Now, David, in this psalm is saying, by your favor, do good to Zion and build the walls of Jerusalem in the way that it's, it's um, uh, phrased in, in uh, the hymns of praise song. The idea is, despite what I've done, exalt your people, exalt your name, right? Why then, verse 19, does he talk about sacrifice? Because in verse 16, he says, you don't want sacrifice. And now in verse 19, he says, then you'll delight in sacrifices. The point was not that they should never do sacrifices. The point was they need to get their heart right or the sacrifices didn't mean anything. And if they dealt with the sin that was in their hearts, then they could come to God and offer the sacrifices, and not just them, but other sinners converted to you, verse 13, and all of these would gather together. And despite the fact that David had a great and wicked and terrible sin, God forgives him, God restores him, And God's name can be exalted more even through this circumstance. So what's our conclusion then? When we go to God and ask forgiveness for our sin, and we ought to ask forgiveness for our sin because it offends God, we need to do so on the basis of God's character. Like David does at the beginning. Your loving kindness, your loving loyalty to your people, though they don't deserve it. His compassion, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. We need to come before God with that kind of attitude, remembering who He is, remembering, as David did in the second part of the psalm, the wickedness that we are prone to before we know Christ, and even sometimes after we have professed faith in Christ, that needs to constantly be dealt with, constantly be purified, and we can't clean it up ourselves, we can't cover over it, we can't hide it, We need God's help to deal with it. We, too, can pray the same sort of thing that David does in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Repentance begins at the point of salvation, and that initial repentance is necessary. Turning from our sins, turning to God. But that's something we've got to keep doing all through life, not to get saved every time, but to continually grow more like Christ and to continually put off more and more of our sin and put on more and more of, our right, more of God's righteousness. We may never, hopefully, have murdered anyone or committed adultery or all of these sorts of things, but we are still guilty for all of the sins that we commit. Hateful words that we speak, Greedy desires of our heart. The list goes on. And we ought to be repenting to God of all those things as well. And paralleling the idea of sacrifices. If you are loving some specific sin, or several specific sins, and still coming to church, and singing songs of worship, and giving in the offering... And serving on a work day, and whatever else, are those good things to do? Yes. But God's not going to accept him in the same way that He did if He would if your heart was right before him. We don't earn favor with God by doing good things, just like the sacrifices didn't save the Israelites. They were the sign of obedience. But in the same way it's possible for us to do outward acts of obedience and not have a right heart before God. And this psalm reminds us we need to repent thoroughly. We need to repent completely. And God is gracious to forgive. And so I just want to encourage you along those lines that God forgives, so take your sin before Him and deal with it with Him because of the sort of God that He is and because of the sort of people that we are apart from His Lord, it's only by your grace, by your mercy, that we are not consumed in a moment for the sins that we commit. It's easy for us to look at somebody else and think that their sins are far greater than ours. But any sin that we have that is before you is something that we need to deal with with you. And so, Lord, I pray that you help us to do that. Lord, help us to consider, not primarily, but also to consider the impact that unrepentant sin has on our testimony for those around us, on the, as it warns in Hebrews, the root of bitterness that springs up and defiles many. Lord, we think that sin is something we sort of put in our pockets and keep to ourselves and doesn't affect anybody else, but sin affects those around us too, Lord. It affects the health of your church. It affects the glory of your name. And in the worst case, if we love sin so much that we are never willing to deal with it, it may show that we have a heart that doesn't even know you at all. So, Lord, help us to take sin seriously. Not that if we ever sin, we immediately say, I never knew Christ and I need to get saved. But that we do take it seriously and that it ought to break our hearts and that we ought to deal with it promptly and thoroughly. And may this song be a reminder tonight for us to do that. I pray this in Christ's name.